to Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Philippians chapter 2. I would like to read verses 12 through 16. Our key text will be verse number 15. But Philippians 2, 12 through 16. Title of the message, Sons of God in a Sinful World. Verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Verse 15 again, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Paul wrote this letter while he was in jail. There are several epistles of his that we know are called prison epistles. What is attractive to me about these letters is that here's a man that even though he's incarcerated, he's still thinking about other people. Most prisoners, if you've ever seen any documentaries on television, they tend, A, to all say that they're innocent of the charges and shouldn't be in there, or B, they're very bitter about being in prison. Paul is in jail because of his relationship with God. He knows he's guilty of having a relationship with God through Christ, and he's not ashamed of it. But yet, even though he's in jail, he has, on more than one occasion, sat down and penned a letter to some Christians to let them know that even though you believe my circumstances are bad, you should rejoice even as I rejoice. This man could write to Christians on the outside while he was in the inside of a jail. How is it that we struggle ourselves to, to remain upbeat, positive, encouraged? To rejoice in God when we have a few difficulties. Paul wrote this letter to people that were living in a city called Philippi. Philippi was in the Macedonia region. A sister city would be Thessalonica. The ancient Greeks had a belief system that was totally different than other people, but not so dissimilar from what we have here in the West presently. In ancient Greece, Greece one of the things that was popular was pluralism. There were a lot of different ethnic groups, a lot of different religions. They had a pantheon of gods. That means that there were more than just one God that was in charge. There were a multitude of gods that somehow they believed stemmed or descended from a race of beings called the Titans. These, these gods were worshipped by many Greek people to the point that they all had their own cults and temples. People offered sacrifices to these gods. No one God was bigger or stronger or better than the other gods. Well, maybe I should say it this way. All gods were treated the same, although they all had different characteristics. Zeus was considered to be one of the fathers 
of the, the gods. And these gods in Greek mythology came and had physical relationships with humans. And through those relationships created a race of people called heroes. Half God, half human. That's what the word hero that we use in English comes from. Well, these gods, they had different qualities and their temperament. Some of them were uh, alcoholics. They loved wine. Uh, some of them were uh, driven by the lusts of chasing after the, the flesh of humans. Some of them were mean spirits. By that, they were malevolent. Some of them were good spirits. They were uh, distributing gifts to different people. But the thing you have to understand is that people tend to take on the characteristics of the God or gods they worship. Because you know, as David said in the psalm, he said, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and behold the beauty of his temple. That's because you become what you behold. And if you serve a God that has characteristics that are real strange and he's schizophrenic and that kind of a thing, you'll be that kind of a person. And that's how the ancient Greeks were. One day they could be happy with someone. Another day they'd be unhappy with someone. And it's in that culture where they had a very libertarian spirit. The Greeks, this was the culture that encouraged and approved relationships between adult males and young boys, ancient Greece. This was the culture that, that was involved with the, the love of the flesh in a way that's different than how we particularly have it here in America. But you can look at the ancient statues and see they loved the male and the female figure. And to portray them nude. It was a culture unlike anything that we have here. Paul writing to the believers that were living in that particular area. He goes out of his way to tell them in verse number 12. I want you, despite my absence, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Despite the fact that you live in a culture and in a world that is opposed to your belief in one singular God and that God that has his son that came and died on the cross for you. I want you to ignore all of that and individually work out your own salvation. This is a private matter. This is not something we're going to vote on. You don't ask somebody what they think about your faith in your religion. You don't trade what you believe in God because somebody else has come along and said, we've got something that's better. And you certainly don't include Jesus as one among the many gods as equal to all the other gods. You work out your salvation. Know that the name of Jesus is great, that there's no other name under the heaven among men whereby we must be saved. If I must be saved, that means I may. Be saved. If I'm obliged to do something, that means it's within my power to do this thing. And when Paul says that, he makes it very plain that salvation is an individual thing. How often do you think about that? That your salvation isn't dependent upon me. Mine isn't dependent upon you. It's dependent upon what we understand of, of the, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we apply that cross to our life. How you apply the work of redemption to your life. Is it something that you do every day? Is it something that's important to you every other day? Or do you strive to live for God all the time? This is a man from jail writing a letter like this. He goes on to tell him it's God that works in you to do his wishes and his good pleasure. 
That if you don't understand what's, at, what's taking place right now, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is at work in your life. God, the Holy Ghost, is the one that brought conviction to your life. He brings regeneration to your life. He brings the fullness of the Holy Ghost to your life. It's his leadership that's important in your Christian life. And it is God himself that is at work in you. Invisible, yet powerful and strong. So that's why he can tell them in verse 14, do everything without murmuring and disputes. Now, I had thought about entitling this message tonight, Stop Complaining. And taking verse 14 as a text. But then I thought, if I title it Stop Complaining, then the inference they'll draw from the title is, Pastor believes we've been complaining. And since I know that I'm, I'm one of the few pastors in America that, that has a church that's somewhat perfect and doesn't have anybody in it that murmurs or complains, then, then I said, I'm, I'm not going to call it that at all. We'll just talk about verse number 15. However, what is a murmurer? A murmurer is a person when you talk to them, they have to be muttering something or saying something under their breath as they're walking away. A disputer, somebody who's bold and brash enough to stand up and start an argument with you. It was like when I was a kid or a teenager and, and, and my mom would tell me to do something. Of course, you know, you, you turn, you walk, well, I always have to be the one to do that. What am I doing? I'm murmuring. Somebody that's a disputer is somebody's going to turn around and say, look, you telling me to go clean my room. You go clean my room if you want it clean. That's a that's a disputer. They, they don't usually live long. <laughs> Life expectancy just just kind of, you know, every time they talk, they use they lose years off off of their life. But. Anybody who's a murmurer or a disputer, I can promise you, once you create that kind of reputation for yourself, it's hard to live that down. If on your job you're known as a murmurer, if in the church you're known as a murmurer, if in your community you're known as someone who's always murmuring and, and saying things, complaining about stuff, I can promise you there'll be people that want to avoid you. Paul said, think about me, I'm in jail. But even though I'm in jail, I'm not complaining about it. He says, do everything without murmuring. Well, pastor, they take advantage of me on the job. They don't pay me what I'm worth. Do everything without murmuring. In another place, Paul says, whatsoever you do, do in the name of the Lord. Well, pastor, you don't understand. They take advantage of my grace and my meekness and my charity and my mercy. Do all things without murmuring or disputing. Whatever you do, do in the name of the Lord. I can let you in on a little secret. If you want to keep yourself out of situations that's going to create hostility and murmuring, don't allow those situations to come into existence. If you're the kind of a person that is so in love with your tools and you've got the best tools on the planet and they're expensive and they matter to you a whole lot, if someone comes to you and asks, can they borrow your skill saw? And you already know you're going to be sweating at night, wondering what they're doing with it, and if you're ever going to get back, it's best for you just to tell somebody, you know what, no, you can't, you can't have it. 
It's better to do that and be open and honest than for you to give it to them. And then you're calling them every day and then you're sitting at home complaining. I can't understand. I mean, they got money. They got a job. I don't know why they don't go by their own skill saw. So now your, your own temperament and your character is being affected by your own choice. Your own choice. Paul says to these people that are free, do everything without murmuring and without disputes so that you can be blameless and harmless. And that is exactly how we want to live our lives. Notice how he describes the world they're living in, crooked and perverse. He didn't mean that as a compliment. There's nothing in those adjectives that are complimentary at all. You're living in a world that, according to Paul, is crooked and perverse. That means just going in the opposite direction. Reminds me of the story where the Lord said to Israel, I planted you as a beautiful vine and you sprung up and you turned into this degenerate plant. What happened? It reminds me of the parable Jesus told of how the, the, the man went to sleep one night have, have, having sown the field and it was a beautiful field. And then he went to sleep and he woke up and all he found were weeds, tares. Then the Lord had to tell us in that parable, the enemy hath done this. Proverbs 14 verse 2 tells us that the upright man walks in the fear of the Lord and his righteousness increases. But it says the perverse man despises him. Why are you surprised that people don't like you when you're a Christian? Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. It's impossible for that person that hates God to love you that are connected with God because the hostility that's in their heart has to be directed toward people that love that very God. You hear it on television. You listen to the vitriol that they pour out in these talk shows. I heard Whoopi Goldberg one time talking about Christians saying they're, they're as bad as the terrorists. She doesn't know God. And her lack of knowledge of God is what leads her to make statements like that. Because she's perverse, she despises those that walk with God. Isaiah chapter 19 verse 14 tells us that within the nation of Egypt, because of the princes, it says God had mingled a perverse spirit amongst the people. That means that through the leaders, it came into the general populace. In the population, they couldn't think rationally. They could not even think correctly because that perverse spirit was at work inside of that country. And what was wrong, they considered to be right. And what was right, they considered to be wrong. And the scripture even talks about woe when people call evil good, good evil. You say, how does a nation get like that? Perverse spirit. When we look at our own country, think about it. I I told a friend of mine just a few days ago, and we we weren't even really getting into the subject of our culture too much. But I just happened to say to him, I said, you know, my grandmother died 22 years ago and she was in her 80s. I said, I am so glad she did not live to see what we have today. So my, my grandmother would be astonished that educated, intelligent adults would have discussions about what bathroom a child ought to use. See, That's because the princes of Egypt that had that perverse spirit that they brought into the nation and brought about all kinds of illicit activity and behavior, that same kind of a spirit has come to our nation through the decades, and here we are now having discussions about things that may make no sense at all. 
Think about it. That's where we are. On my trip to California in the airport there in San Francisco, I walked over to the bookstore and I saw a book. It was called Ethics. So I just kind of wanted to see what it was about. It was written by some gentleman that I think was a professor. I forget what university, but I'm flipping through the pages and I always have certain sections that I go to to see what they're talking about. So I went to the section where they were talking about uh, human relationships and they made the statement that in Germany, the ethics committee for the nation has now petitioned the government asking them to decriminalize incest because they have so many siblings there who have had children and so many parents there who've had relations with their kids and now have children. And they say it's not right for these kids to have to grow up with this stigma attached to their life. And I, I looked at that. I put the thing back up on the shelf. I turned and walked away. Couldn't walk away. Had to go back again just to make sure I did not misread it. Looked at it again. That's exactly what it said. You tell me this isn't a crooked and perverse world that we're living in. The truth of the matter is, intelligent people have fallen for this. People that had, once had common sense have lost their minds. You'll hear people, they'll talk to you about how we have to care for the spotted owl. Make sure that we don't destroy its habitation and cut down too many trees. And they'll, they'll even advocate on behalf of dolphins and whales and get mad at people that harpoon whales. And they've got programs on television where, where people are out on boats doing what they can to stop people from harpooning whales and things like that. And these same people who are so defensive when it comes to these animals and how we got to protect the elephant and the ivories and all of that and the rhinoceros. They won't open their mouth for a baby that's defenseless in mama's womb. They'll actually encourage ladies to get to a doctor that can end that pregnancy if it's an unwanted pregnancy. If somebody would have told our founding fathers 200 years ago that this is the kind of nation we'd have, they laughed at you and said you're a lie. Paul writing to these people living in that ancient world, Greece and Rome, that Greco-Roman culture that has overspread the Mediterranean region. He says to them, you are sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. God never saved us to pull us out of this thing. He saved us so that we can be witnesses in the midst of this. Because sinful people are bold in the way they act toward other people. And as Christians, our witness has to be strong. That's why the baptism of the Holy Ghost is so important. That's why being led by God is important, because he said, you shall be witnesses unto me. God wants your witness to be effective. He wants it to be dynamic. Sons of God without rebuke. What does that mean? That means we shine as lights in this world. So as Christians, we are to provide contrast. You are not to blend in with the world. You are to stand out and be different. Never forget that all colors agree in the dark. We came out here at midnight, long after the sun had set. 
came into this room and it was not not a, a, a any kind of a of a of a ray of light shining anywhere in here, it would be pitch black. It wouldn't matter if you held up a picture that was painted red. Somebody else held up one that was pink. Someone else could have one that was gray. Somebody else could have some purple. But in the darkness, it all looks the same. That's what happens with sin. When it overtakes a world, then pretty soon everybody starts saying, well, it's, what, what, what's the difference? Your, your God is... The same as my God, truth to you is different than truth to me, but nevertheless, it's true for you, even though it may not be true for me, but true is relative to who we are. We live in a pluralistic society. All of us may worship different gods, but our gods are essentially the same because we're sincere in our devotion to our God. The scripture said you are to be a light providing a contrast. That's what the scripture says. Contrast. Then it says Christians provide illumination. So our role is to, to shine the light. On those areas that are dark. Now, this is why a sinful world doesn't like the church because it's impossible for us to be a city set on a hill without us acknowledging and discerning what's right and what's wrong. So people will say to you, well, you can't be judgmental because if you're judgmental, then you are going to offend people. Well, if you don't do what God wants you to do, you're going to offend him. And who, who would you rather have upset with you, God or somebody that you work with or neighbor? And then sometimes people say, well, you know, you, you, can't, have, you can't have discrimination because uh, discrimination in any form is wrong. And I've had discussions with pastors, and I'd say that is a lie. So everybody practices some form of discrimination and, it, and, and it, there's nothing wrong with certain forms of it. you say, give me an example. I give you an example. When I was a kid, my mom and dad knew all the families on our street. So did I. She knew all the people in our neighborhood from two or three blocks over, three or four blocks in, in the other direction. So we'll say within a, a mile and a half circumference because of me and my older brothers. We knew all the kids in the neighborhood. Mom and dad knew all the different families. Some of them my mom and dad went to high school with. So my mom knew what the parents were like. Occasionally, not often, but occasionally, my mom would come home and she would find in our driveway or in our house a friend from the neighborhood. And then afterwards, when they were gone, my mom would say something like this to me. Now, I know you had so-and-so over here. But he's into a lot of things that I don't like, and I don't want that connected with you. I know his mom and his dad, and, and, and I just don't want you to have no parts of him, so don't ever have him in this house again, and I don't want to see you around him again. Now, I could turn around and say, well, look, mom, don't you think you're being judgmental? I know exactly what my mom would have said. I'll be as judgmental as I want. I changed your diapers, and I bought the underwear you're wearing now. You do whatever I tell you to do. What's she doing? Discriminating. Because she recognizes, not on the basis of color of skin, but on the basis of somebody's actions, I don't want that connected with my son. And sometimes you have to be the kind of a person that says, I recognize that is wrong, that lifestyle is unseemly, what this person is doing is not correct, and I don't want it connected with me in any way. Now this is how Paul says it. Abstain from the very appearance of evil. What is he saying? Be discriminating. If it looks wrong, 
If it looks evil, it's best for you to stay away from it. Now, I don't know why it is, but, but in high school, uh, my, my older brothers and, 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 and then me sometimes, we, we, we all had our own cars. And so we, we felt like the best time to leave the house was after 10 p.m. And, and, and mom and dad like to kind of remind us, nothing good happens after 10 p.m. Well, of course, you, you, know, you know the answer we, we gave to them. Oh, yes, back in the Leave it to Beaver days, you could say that. But, I mean, now we're, we're, we're having, having a good time when you go out there. And then, of course, when you, when you end up in a place where you're not supposed to be, and then something bad happens, and then you've got to make that phone call then you wish that you were home. So my older brother did that one time, my oldest brother. He somehow was messing around with a girl in high school who was dating another guy in the school, and she was one of these ladies who kind of liked to play the guys between one another. And in our high schools in Cleveland, Ohio, they weren't like out here where everybody knows each other. I mean, you're talking about two or 3,000 people in, in the school. And so my, my brother... He was invited to a house party one night, and sure enough, he, he, I don't know how it worked out, but he somehow ended up at that house party. And uh, so right about 11 o'clock or later, I couldn't have been but, but six or seven, my mom gets a phone call, and, and, and I could tell it, it, was, it wasn't good. And, and I found out later on that what had been said was this. Here's my oldest brother called on the phone. He said, uh, Mom, I'm here at such and such house party, and, and this girl done got me trapped, and I'm over here about to get jumped by some boys. He's in the house making a phone call. So my mom, she loads me up in the car, my other brother Rick up in the car. She loads the shotgun, and we went out, got in the car, and went over to the house, and of course, there's a bunch of people standing all outside, you know, just, just kind of acting like they're not going to let anybody come past, you know. But Mama gets out of that car, and she pumps that shotgun, and she walks right on in, brings her boy out. And, of course, when she brings my brother out, he's kind of walking, looking behind, just kind of doing like this here, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Crooked and perverse world, folks. <laughs> Nobody was shining like a light in that situation, I can promise you. We're to provide a contrast. Christians are to provide illumination. We're to shine the light on the dark. We're not to blend into the dark, but to be different. But then also as Christians, we are to act like sons of God because we look like our father. So we should take on his characteristics over time. You become a Christian, you don't become perfect overnight, but you do through the reading of the word and learning more about God. Your character, your temperament, your personality, everything changes. If my mom was standing here and a bunch of other ladies were standing next to her, you'd easily be able to pick her out because we look the same. If my dad was in here and he walked past and a bunch of other guys walked past, you'd be able to pick him out along with me because he's bow-legged and I'm bow-legged. We have the characteristics of our parents. We grew up wanting to act like them. So as a Christian, we should want to be like God. To be godly means to be an imitator of God, to act like God. How can you know how to act like your father if you don't spend time with your face in the book to learn how your father would conduct himself? 
If you're the kind of person who don't like to read, you should pray and ask God to give you a desire to read. Yeah. Because the more you learn about God, the more you want to love him. The more you love him, the more you want to learn about him. It's a relationship that's powerful. You see little girls, they want to be like mom. They see mom put on some shoes or some heels, and pretty soon the little girls are stumbling around trying to do the same thing. I was that way with my dad. He'd come home from that second shift, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, come through that door. He's forming at a steel plant, 38, 40 years out there at that steel plant at one time, and and, and he'd come in and, and put those boots over there by the door. And I'm telling you, the next morning, I'm, I'm, I'm right over there trying to put those boots on, stumbling all around the house. Because you tend to want to imitate those that are your guardians and authority figures. To be a Christian means I want to be like Christ. I want to be like my father. Jesus said, I only do those things that please my father. Can you make that statement? Can you make that statement with a good conscience? So the scripture says that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. Then the other thing we can add in verse 16 here is his holding forth the word of life. I think as a Christian, then we, we should make sure that we hold up God's word as the inspired truth. This is not just one book among many books. You may not understand everything written in this book, but that doesn't change the fact that it's inspired by God. When God had these men put together these Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic texts, they were able to do so without error, without any difficulty. But the word of God is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. Doesn't matter what some PhD tells you on television, I don't care what you hear on the National Geographic channel or what somebody tells you on the radio. This book here, if this book is not true in all its parts, it's not true in any of its parts. If it tells you that Jesus died on the cross, then believe that Jesus died on the cross, just like the old Jewish people believed that in six days you should labor and on the seventh day rest because they believed Genesis one was true. Don't you allow some fabrication of men's minds to change what you believe about Scripture. Verse 16, Christians hold forth the word of life. So we hold up the uniqueness of Christ, the particularity of Christ. I don't care if all the Muslims and Hindus and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons say they have a book that comes directly for God. I'm holding forth the word of life, this book. The only answer. And so in this pluralistic world that we have right now, these people will say to you, oh, we're willing to accept you Christians if you only acknowledge that there is more than one God. But if you're going to hold to the belief that there's only one God, there's only one way to that God, and that's through Jesus Christ, and you can't get to heaven by any other means, then you're going to have problems with us, then we're just going to have problems with them. Because we're going to hold forth the word of life and not change. But then also, let us not forget that this book is the word of God. It contains everything that you need to know about living. This book is not going to tell you how to repair a combine. It's not going to teach you how to audit books. It's not going to tell you how to paint a portrait of somebody. But it will tell you how to get to heaven. But it will tell you also how to produce and how to create in your own life a good character while you're auditing books, repairing a combine, and painting a picture. It will work on your character. So why are you doing that? So the person that's sitting at the uh, 
on the bench in a courtroom or the one that's pushing a, uh, a vacuum cleaner or the one that's driving a school bus. The scripture may not tell that person how to drive the bus, Rob, but it will tell them how to conduct themselves as they're driving that bus. That's what I'm getting at. This book is powerful. And when God opens it up, he unfolds it just like the, the petals on a flower opening up on a sunny day. Little by little, it just exposes more and more of the fragrance of God. And the more you read it, the more you love God, and it causes you to desire to be just like him, and you don't want to be ashamed of him. That's what it is to be a son of God. That word son of God is not talking about gender. That's generic for men and women in Christ, serving the king. Well, let me tell you this in in closing. There was a time when... I lived in the Middle East where I held forth the word of God and, and, and this stuff was challenged. I had a roommate in Jordan and he was Mennonite. And in those days, 94 through 96, when I lived in the Middle East, I dressed and I acted like an Arab person. So I wore the long gown, the thobe that you see them wearing on television sometimes, and I wore the, the keffiyeh, you know, the little rag you see on their head all tied up, going down, tied up in, in all these different designs. And, and I had my sideburns came down and connected to them, my mustache and my beard, and so I looked just like I was an Arab guy in the Middle East. Now, my Mennonite friend, he was all blonde and looked like he was from Sweden. But he and I would walk to the bus stop together each day, and this one morning we... We, we got on the little mini, uh, they called it a bus, but it was a minivan. They only seat about 14, but, you know, Arab folk got about 40 folks in there. Arms hanging out the window, heads and stuff hanging out, just that kind of a thing. And, and we got in there, and, and my friend, the, 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 the blonde guy, he gets in, he walks down a little aisle there, and he goes all the way to the back, sits up against the window. And, and I came midway, and I just kind of squeezed in up against the window. And in these minibuses, they have these these Islamic seminary students who they ride the buses and receive offerings as they're in school. So if, if the driver is here looking out the front window and all the people are this way facing this way, the Muslim student sits down right in the center as people get up on the bus. He's got a bucket right here so anybody getting on and getting off, they can drop something in. And then he sits there and the whole time you're riding, he preaches a sermon to him about Muhammad and about Islam. So that morning we got, got on, we were um, riding along, and then, and then I, I noticed that this gentleman who's preaching in Arabic, talking about Muhammad, suddenly he switches from Arabic to perfect English. I mean, he didn't even have any gr- grammatical problems the way he was speaking, and he's talking directly to my Mennonite, Mennonite roommate, and of course, when he switched to English, everybody on the bus, they're kind of doing like this and looking around, so wanting to blend in. I did the same thing, said, what? looking around. And so I saw my friend back there and he was quite nervous. And that Muslim man, he's up there saying to him, why don't you leave that religion of Christianity? It's the white man's religion. Why don't you turn towards Islam? There is no God, but God and Muhammad is his prophet. He's going on saying all of this in English. And and so looking at my friend, I knew he needed some help because he had just started Arabic school. So I waited a few moments and then I just started saying in Arabic to him about Jesus, 
him being God's son and how he came and died on the cross. And so now everybody's looking at me. And I mean, it was quiet enough on that mini bus to hear a pin drop. Well, the, we got to our stop. Me and my friend got off. That Muslim seminary student got off with us. He's yelling at me in Arabic. I'm yelling at him in Arabic. He's telling me all about Muhammad. I'm telling him all about Jesus. And I'm telling you, there's a crowd of people that gathered listening to us. And I think even to this day, I know it had to be the gift of faith. But even to this day, I'm absolutely surprised that them people didn't stomp me to death out there. Because it's against the law to proselytize Muslims and preach the gospel publicly. And they, if they would have taken my life, there wasn't an Islamic law on the books that would have penalized that man if that crowd would have attacked me. But I learned something out of that, and that was this. I was over there learning Arabic to preach the gospel to them and to reach them. But somewhere, he had been learning English to reach us. I learned that. The same way we had targeted them with the gospel. They had made us a target a long time ago. And that's why I still feel even to this day. I'd much rather go over there and deal with them there. Than wait for them to come here. And try to change us here. People say to me all the time. Why, why, why do you go to different countries and preach the gospel to different people. And try to change their lifestyle and change their culture. Why don't you just leave people alone and let them live the way they want to live. Because Jesus commanded us to go. And when he said go. He knew that out there in this world there would be cultures that are different. Than what we have right here in America. I mean in less than 24 hours, 48 hours folks. My wife and I are going to be in a world where they still abduct little girls, sacrifice them to spirits. That's where we'll be. We'll be in a world where there's such wickedness and witchcraft over there that, I mean, you got witch doctors all over the place, and people very often are afraid to even deal with them, but yet we go and we preach the gospel. So, Folks, hold up the word of life and don't be ashamed. If this sinful world can be bold about what they believe, then you be bold about what you believe. You don't have to go around with a chip on your shoulder trying to start something every time somebody says something. But if they ask your opinion about something, you let them know. You let them know. Because there's nothing more important than this book right here. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, it is our, our desire to minister your word clearly with simplicity God, we know across this earth there are people that don't know you. Right here in this county, there are people who do not know you. Help us to be witnesses. Help us to live for you in a way that, that people, when they see our lifestyles, they'll ask us questions. And Lord, when the opportunity presents itself, help us not to be ashamed to say this is right, this is wrong. And here's what the scriptures say. And if you have any belief in God at all, you need to do what God says do. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, 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 amen.